I think I had this topic wrong on the other splash screen, but uh, I'm going to talk with you this morning about the grace of God and the, that the grace of God has appeared to men. This is not a sermon about the general subject of grace, although we could do that and we've done that before. It would be a, certainly a worthwhile subject. This is about one aspect of the subject of grace that we find in the book of Titus. There's a tremendous amount of misunderstanding about this subject of grace, or even the word itself, perhaps. And we'll deal with some of that as we go along. I think one of the concepts that people have is reflected in an article that I read here, even as I was preparing some notes on this sermon a couple weeks ago or more, about the fact that God's grace implies that basically everybody's going to be saved and pretty much God loves everybody, so everybody's going to be saved because God's a gracious God. That's the idea that people try to get across or get out of, out of the Bible, and it's certainly not the truth about the matter at all. The word grace in, in the New Testament, its various forms, even gracious and things like that, is, was a common Greek word in the ordinary culture of New Testament times. It was a word, kare, or kare, that form of it was used, like we use the word hello. It was used in a common greeting to people on the street. Great. And they went, and when they said goodbye, they would often use the same word, kare, or forms of that. So that it became a greeting of hello and goodbye. And what it means is goodness. The word grace just very simply means goodness or something that is pleasant or good. And so when you said grace to someone, you were saying like goodbye. You're wishing them well as you go away. When you say goodbye, you're wishing goodness to someone that you're leaving. And, uh, you know, so we use the words very similarly. Now, in the New Testament, this common word, and it was used in a broad range. It was not just used about hell and goodbye. It was used for any kind of a gift, any kind of good thing that happened. It was a very common word in Greek, as I understand it, at that time of, that the New Testament was written. In the New Testament, it takes on a more specific meaning in many passages because it's talking not about human interactions of goodness or well-wishing, although it is used of well-wishing. Paul say, grace to you and peace be multiplied. He means goodness. But it's often all, often used of God's grace, which is God's special favor that he showed to man. And it is sometimes, as we'll see in a moment, maybe if, I get, if we have time, I'm going to read part of an article here to you about somebody using this word. It is often confused with or conflated with God's love. Now, they're related to each other, make no mistake about it, but God's grace and God's love are different. God's grace is the offer that he makes to man as a sinner, starting with Adam and Eve. He makes an offer to man, I will figure out a way for you to be saved. You're a sinner, you affronted the God of the heavens as a creature, you should be destroyed. I will offer you a way for that not to happen. Graciously give it, because I don't, God didn't have to offer man anything when he sinned. He was perfectly free as the creator to destroy man, and that means you, for your sin, he doesn't owe us anything. And so when it talks about grace being freely given, it means that God gave it of his own free will. He doesn't have to do it. There's no no compelling reason to do it. It really is a legal term. And oftentimes it was used this way. It's even used this way in our day and time. 
of a judge or the law offering grace to someone who's guilty. So if someone is guilty of a crime and a, and a lesser penalty or no penalty is sometimes offered to that person out of grace. Gover- a governor or someone will offer a, a clemency. Very similar idea. And so God, clemency doesn't imply that you're innocent and a pardon doesn't imply that you're innocent. In fact, that's why a lot of criminals will not accept a pardon. There have been many criminals down through time who when the governor offers a pardon for their crime, maybe of murder or something, they refuse the pardon because a pardon implies that I was guilty and you're pardoning me for my guilt. And the people who think they're innocent will not accept a pardon. They want to be shown to be innocent, not pardoned of a guilty crime that they committed. But we're all guilty before God. And so God offers, because of his love, he offers grace to us, an opportunity to be saved. Now, the question is, are there conditions attached to receiving God's grace? This is what most modern evangelical denominational teachers try to confuse you about by a lot of double talk, in my opinion, sometimes. I don't know if it's disingenuous, but it certainly isn't thought through very well. Because in order to receive God's grace, we have to say, well, is it unconditional or is it conditional? Oh, no, God's grace is unconditional. Nothing we... Really? This very verse we're going to read this morning implies there's conditions attached to God's grace. In fact, well, it's a free gift, they say. Okay, it's a free gift. If you offer me a gift and I refuse it, is it a free gift? Well, it might be freely offered, but if I refuse the gift, there's no gift that actually takes place. No giving actually takes place. And I can refuse gifts, and you can refuse gifts. So God freely offers salvation, or he freely offers grace to us. But we don't have to receive it, and many people, in fact, most people choose not to receive God's grace. Why does God offer this gift? This is where the confusion takes place. Part of it is, God offers the gift of grace because he loves man. Love and grace are not the same thing. They're about the same subject. That is man's sin and God's grace or God's desire to save man. But God's love motivates him to offer the grace. But you can refuse God's grace. Bible says so in several places and many people do. But let's go to the book of Titus. We're going to get, I'm getting caught up ahead of myself here. Let's go read the scriptures. That's where you want to read. That's what you want to read this morning. Let's go to Titus 2. This is in a broader context, but we're going to pull this out, hopefully fairly, pull it out to talk about. He says in Titus 2, beginning in verse 11, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Now, sometimes this is phrased, and we'll see, it's translated sometimes, for the grace of God that brings salvation to all men has appeared. It changes the phrases, the order of the phrases. It doesn't change the meaning but sometimes that people think it changed the meaning. So the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. And so this first couple of verses here says that grace brings salvation 
that it has appeared to all men. So it almost as is as if this grace is a person, and it is a person, strangely enough. When you read this verse, you probably should think fundamentally, Jesus Christ. What has appeared from God to all men as a source of God's grace and salvation? Jesus Christ. That's who's appeared. That's what's appeared. That's the main, that's God's grace summed up in one thing. It's the person of Jesus Christ. He is the savior and he is the sacrifice that was offered by God, freely of God's own, own free will, not of compulsion of any kind. Legally, God, God could have certainly condemned all of us by legally, but he chose to offer mercy instead. Now, mercy and grace are very similar to each other. They're brothers of kind. They're not exactly the same. But mercy, grace, and love are all related, but they have a special relationship between them that needs to be kept uh, clear, made clear. It's interesting, though, he says, we'll come back to this, just looking at the text here in front of us before we dissect it a little bit more, that this grace of God teaches us something. Now, teaching us implies that we're ignorant or we don't know some things. I'm not using the word ignorant here as an insult. I'm ignorant of a lot of things. I don't know a lot of, the word just simply means I do not know or do not know. So it implies that people do not know some things and that the grace of God has appeared to teach them some things. So the idea that God loves man just like he is, come as you are, God loves you, he'll save you, implying that you had to do nothing to receive this except just understand this in some way. Well, there it is. There's a condition, understanding it, believing it, but we'll get back to that. This says grace is teaching you something. Now, what is teaching you here is some pretty serious stuff, stuff that the world does not like at all. That's why I wanted to focus on this verse. What's it teach you? Well, it teaches you that we should deny ungodliness and worldly lust and that we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. Apparently, they had some problems with sobriety back in the first century, just like we do today. But we'll come back to that. Now then, let's look at this and break it down quickly this morning. We don't, I don't want to beat you to death with this. But this passage says the grace of God has appeared. So God, this, God looks at man in the Garden of Eden and man's sin. And the result of this, look, at, he, he can see the beginning from the end. We can only see linearly, chronologically in time. We can't see the end now that we're here. In fact, most of us don't even understand what went before us. We don't understand the past or the future, and sometimes don't even understand what's going on around us. We can't see much of anything as human beings. But God's seen the whole movie. He knows how it's all going to turn out. And Adam and Eve had a free choice to make in the Garden of Eden. Eat the fruit, not eat the fruit. And God, God showed them they could do either one. They were free to do either one. And they chose to not do that. And God looked at human history and said, well, they're all going to choose that way. And this is exactly what we do. We sin after the likeness of Adam. We all sin in choosing to do wrong in our own life. And we've all affronted and insulted and spit in the face of the creator of the universe by our rebellion against him, both physically in the things that we do and in our hearts. We've rebelled against the creator and followed our own path. Now, you may be in the point right now in your life where you're trying not to do that, where you've made a commitment to not rebel against the creator anymore. And, and that's, that's what is required of you. But that doesn't mean it hasn't happened before. And any time that happens, any of the, any time that rebellion happens, 
man falls into sin and is therefore worthy of judgment. And God didn't want it to be that way. He did not want it to be that way. He wanted man to join him forever in covenant relationship with him in fellowship with him eternally. That's what God wants. He wants man to be near him. Don't you remember reading in the Bible where in the beginning where it says that God walked with Adam in the garden in the cool of the day? He wants to be near us. It's odd. It's hard to explain why God would want to be near us, but he does. He doesn't want to be separated from us. He wants to be near man. And so he tried to, he realized I have to destroy all these creatures. I should just destroy them all. Because there's, I can look down through history and say, let's just stop this before it ever gets started. But he didn't. He told Eve, I'm going to bring through your seed a savior. And then he told Abraham, in your seed, all nations will be blessed. He offered grace. He offered a way of pardon. This is the grace. Was it unconditional the way that evangelicals like to preach about it? It wasn't unconditional. It was obviously conditioned upon what they did, what they do to receive it. Uh, get ahead of myself here, but let's, no, I'm not going to get ahead of myself. So God's grace has appeared. That means it's appeared in the form of Christ. Well, now you say it's appeared in the form of Christ for you and I today in the 21st century. What does this look like in real life? What does it mean he's appeared? Well, I'll tell you how he's appeared. He's appeared in the word of God. You and I would know nothing about Jesus Christ or God's offer of grace if the Bible had not been written and preserved for us. We would not know anything about it at all. That's just the way it is. I know, I've told you before, this lady that used to call the radio station in West Palm when I was on down there, and she would say that she she uh, she loves Jesus, but she doesn't like that Bible thing, you know, all those crazy things in the Bible. She doesn't like that, but she likes Jesus. I can never convince her that she didn't know any... I said, can you tell me something that you know about Jesus that's not in the Bible? I'd ask her that. So can you just name anything you know about Jesus that you love so much that's not in the Bible? Well, she can never do that, of course. Because the only knowledge we have of Jesus, which is God's grace being offered, is in the Bible. So you got to go there. That's how it intersects with you and me today, through the knowledge we have of the Scripture. So Christ appeared in my life as a young man when someone in my family and other places taught me the truth about God. They taught me the truth about God's will and, and the sacrifice of Christ. They taught me what they knew from the Bible so it could come into my heart. And then that motivated my heart to become a Christian in 1966. I know that seems like a long time ago. It was. But uh, that's what motivated me as a young man. Doesn't make me unique. Just makes me like any other person to become a Christian. But how did I know that he appeared to me in this? He still appears to me in the scriptures. I don't know anything about Christ that I can't read about in the scriptures and then extrapolate from what I do read to what is really true about him. That's the only way I know. So understand that. And it's appeared, he says, to all men. The Bible was not given, nor was Christ's sacrifice made for the elect. One of the popular doctrines of Calvinism that's so widely believed in our culture is that the atonement of Christ was a limited atonement. That's the L in TULIP. You know, that TULIP acronym, total hereditary depravity, unlimited, uh, unconditional grace, I should say, limited atonement, uh, irresistible grace and perseverance of the saints. 
The L is limited atonement, meaning that Christ did not die for everyone. He only died for the ones that God had pre-selected before the world began. God pre-selected some people to be saved and some people to be lost. And Christ came to die for the ones that God had pre-selected. He didn't come to die for anybody. This says the grace of God appeared to who? To all men. Every single person can understand and know about Jesus Christ. And in the in history, back in there when he did appear, he appeared for the purpose of saving all men. Will he save all men? He will not save all men. He wants to save all men. God is not willing that any should perish, Peter says, but that all should come to repentance. Now, repentance implies a condition attached to that salvation, to that grace. But God, God offered the grace to all men if they want it. Unfortunately, some people don't want it. They don't want the gift. You know, I have a gift at the house. I've got a couple gifts at the house you can have of mine. I have, for example, I have a, a used dishwasher at the house. I, I found a better one in the neighbor's trash a couple months ago. And I took the better one and I took the fairly new one. Brian helped buy it four or five years ago. I took it out because it had rusty shells. Put it over to the side, still sitting there in the near the kitchen, and I put the new new the new one in, the, you know, the six year old one in. I put the new one from the trash in the thing, and I'm willing this morning to give that washing machine to anybody in this audience. I mean, that dishwasher, anybody in this audience. All you gotta do is tell me. How many of you don't want the old dishwasher? How many? Oh, I, I, what do you mean you're refusing my gift? I'm offering a free gift. But you don't want it. I got a whole garage full of stuff. I'll give you. Just come over. You don't want my free gifts? No, because you think they're junk. And you got better on your own. And a lot of people look at God's offer of salvation through Christ and they think, I don't want that. I got better on my own. I can do better for myself. And so they're going to go into judgment day with their stuff. Keep letting God's gift go by. But God offered it to everybody. And I'm offering it to everybody. I'm, I, mean, I mean this. You can have it. I can think, I'll start thinking of several things here. We should just stop the sermon. My wife would be very happy. I can start listing and putting up here the things I need to get, get rid of. And she'd be very happy. I got a whole, but the neighbor brought over a whole crate of unripe mangoes to me yesterday. A whole crate of unripe mangoes. Anybody want those? I haven't offered those to you, see? <laughs> I meant to bring them this morning, but it's hard to carry a crate on crutches. But if you want some, I'll bring you some of those because I can never eat a crate. And he told me you can you can set up a little stand. You can sell all the mangoes you want because this tree is full. Anyway, God's gift of grace appears to all men. He wants everyone to be saved. Now, some people have taken that to mean the universalists among us, and there are always some of these, say that because of that, God will save all men. And we have a lot of evangelicals and others who really believe this, even though they can't find much scriptural support for it if challenged. They like to come across in the pulpit as if they, if all men are going to be saved. God can never condemn anyone. God loves everybody, they'll tell you. Since God loves, since God loves everybody, they equate that with God means God's going to save everybody. But let me tell you something. The fact that God loves everybody doesn't mean he's going to save everybody. There's a big problem there. 
a big disconnect. But don't, so don't be fooled by the sweet sounding words implying that just because you're a living, breathing human being and you have nice thoughts once in a while, that God's going to save you because he loves you. That's not what the Bible says. And as a preacher of the gospel, if I'm going to be worthy of anything close to that, and I'm probably not, but if I'm even going to try, I have to tell you what the Bible says about that. And so God wants to save everybody, but he won't. Because they will not accept his gift. He's offering it freely, but they won't accept it. Because, here's the problem, to accept Jesus Christ, it means you've got to change. You, something's got to change in you. And they don't want to do that. Now, Calvinists will say, well, that's because God doesn't want to save them. That God won't change their heart. A miracle won't be performed by the Holy Spirit on their heart to motivate their heart to want him. Now, the Bible doesn't teach that either. We haven't got time to go into all that this morning. But if you're waiting for a miracle to, for the Holy Spirit to perform on your heart before you can believe in Jesus Christ, then you need to listen more closely to what John said about that in John 20. He said, many other signs in John 20, verse 30, did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you might believe and in believing have life in his name. John said there's a lot of things that I could have written in this book about the life of Jesus, but I didn't write them because what I wrote is sufficient to cause you to believe. Now you're saying you're waiting for the Holy Spirit to come and move you so you'll believe in God. And that's what's wrong with people. Well, the Holy Spirit did something. He did. He wrote a book called the Gospel of John, among other books, to show you what you need to do to believe, show you the miracles that you need. But you have to choose it. You have to choose to decide that that's what I'm going to believe. And if you don't, then there's just no way to go. There's nowhere to go without that belief. So God came to save all men. And, and he did it so that this gift could bring them salvation. See, my contention would be very simple. If God intended to save man from the beginning, all men, without them doing anything, he could have done so. As soon as Adam and Eve sinned, he could have forgiven them and walked on and everybody else would have been sinned. He, what he could have done initially... He could have made man in such a way that man could not sin. That would have been the best thing he could have done. Just create a creature that has no free will and can't sin. Why didn't he do that? Well, you can ask him someday if you see him. Why he didn't do that? But he didn't do that. From the beginning, he made a creature that could choose to serve him or choose to reject him. There's that choice. Now, the Calvinists also say that we don't have any free will. They want to quibble about that. Did Adam have free will? He did. They say, well, that was all destroyed at the fall. At the fall, when man sinned, man's free will was ruined. Man cannot choose to do good anymore. Well, what about Cain? After the fall, Cain sinned, and God came to him and said to Cain, if you do well, will you, will you not be lifted up? He told Cain to choose to do good after the fall, he told Cain, you still have the possibility of choosing to serve me. See, we forget that. We want to go back to Adam. You don't have to go, you got to go past the fall and you still find God telling people all the way along, choose life, choose me, choose what's right. And so, that's how God brings salvation to all men. He offers Christ as the atoning sacrifice, as a freely offered gift to, to man. Man doesn't do anything for, God, did that whether man wanted it or not. He brought Christ into the world for everybody to be saved. And then that brought salvation to men. 
But bringing salvation to men did not save men. When Jesus Christ was born in Bethlehem and the angels sang in the heavens about Christ, God bringing salvation to men, glory in the highest. Were all men saved because the angels appeared in the heaven and Christ was born? They were not. Requires more than that. And so in Titus, he even goes on from this. He said, he says more clearly that the grace of God instructs us. We're not used to hearing about grace being a teacher. We're used to be hearing about grace being a thing that you feel. I feel gracious. I feel like grace or by the grace of God. When something good happens, they both happen by the grace of God and things do happen by, by the mercy or grace of God. But this grace of God that Christ brought to bring salvation instructs us. Teaches us, some versions say, some things. Now, I was, a te- I was a teacher in a private school once, and I can tell you from my own experience, and as almost 50 years as a preacher, there's a difference between teaching and learning. Okay, a big difference between teaching and learning. One of my uncles, my favorite uncle, didn't have any children. When my kids were young and they were doing stuff that need to be, they need to be slapped upside the head for, he, he would say, didn't you teach him any better than that? Look at that boy! Look what that boy's doing! Didn't you teach him any better? Doesn't no, sound like an old person. I, I can make it even sound like an old person because I am one. Didn't you teach those children any better than that? And I would say, Uncle Spike, yes, I did teach them. They just don't learn. He never got. He didn't learn what that meant. Yes, I did teach them, and I'm going to teach him some more. Just a sec. Just give me a second. I'm going to teach him some more, real intensely. Is he going to learn, or is she going to learn? I don't know. The grace of God instructs us. Will we learn what it says? I don't know the answer to that because that's your choice. That's something you have to figure out or decide what you're going to do. Now, I think in, I think this is really true, although it may appear that this verse is written to Christians, and it is, but I think it applies to people who aren't Christians too in this sense. If they're ever going to turn away from their own desires to, the, to Christ, they're going to have to learn the, these instructions. He says that instructs us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts. Ungodliness, I'm sorry, but I'm just going to have to sit down here. I have a death grip on this podium up here because I'm about to fall over on the floor. I don't want that to happen. I'd probably still be talking from the floor, but... For those who don't know, I have a back injuries from a car accident. It's taken two surgeries to get me this far, and it got better, and now it's working again. And So they're going to go in a week from Tuesday, Lord willing, and put some more screws and stuff in there and make it stop moving around in there. Let's hope that works. Anyway, ungodliness is a, ge- a big word. It's a general word, which means that which is opposed to God. That which is unpious is the word. It really means unpious, undisrespectful of God. And I think what it means is it's the attitude that people have, very common in ancient times and to today, that I can do what I want. No one can tell me what to do. No one has that right to tell me. Oh, they'll pretend to have some principles, but in the end, they're going to do what they want. That apply, and, and I have been ungodly in my life. You have too. 
where we decide this is what I'm going to do or this is what I'm going to think. No one can tell me any different. I know what the Bible says. They'll say, I, I know what the Bible says, and the next word is what? You know the next word, but we're going to do this. Oh, I know I should do this, they'll say, and then they say, but. And this is a this is the generic idea of ungodliness. We have to deny that, deny that. That means to denounce it, to renounce it, to say, I'm trying to rid myself of this ungodly attitude that Christ is not the Lord in my life, that I'm the Lord. Whatever we, whatever we, whoever we follow, that is our God. And that's the problem of modern society. We've made our own will. We think we even have my body, my choice. I can name a million slogans like, not a million, but quite a few slogans like that. Is it really your choice? Unilaterally, no one has a right to say, nope, you shouldn't do that. Nothing restrains you from doing whatever you want to kill a child. There's no restraint on you. It's simply a matter of your choice. You know, like the, the queen in the Alice in Wonderland, thumbs up or thumbs down, off with their heads. Do you think you have that kind of power in the world, off with their heads? Well, that's what you mean when you say, my body, my choice. I'll do whatever I want. This is one small example of ungodliness. No Christian should say, it's only what I want. I'm going to do whatever I want. No Christian should ever say that. We might say it. We might think it. It's not right. And worldly lust. See, usually what goes with ungodliness is worldly lust, meaning the lust of this world, the lust of the eye, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. That's what John says those are. That worldly lust, that desire, our desires form the basis of our morality. And so a lust is simply, the word here can be a normal thing, but in this case, the way it's used, it's got an epi in front of it, means strong. It, it has more of the idea of evil desire. To do wickedness in God's eyes. He instructs us, we have to learn to deny those things. It's easy. One of the, the thing that, look, in my 50 or 60 years of sort of being a sentient person since I was a kid, uh, there have been many things that have changed. Ungodliness has always been a part of that process, that observation of human society both in society and myself. And people have always followed their lusts. But, and maybe we would say, well, look, it's just because back in the 60s and the 50s when you were born, people did all these wicked things, but they were just hypocrites. Everybody was just a hypocrite. They did the same things we do today, only this covered it all up. Well, there was some of that. I don't believe, though, that that was the common way of thinking in America. We'll just do all these wicked things. We'll just cover it all up and hide it, lie about it. No, people did bad things, but they weren't all hypocrites to the extent that people... And say, well, we're not hypocrites today. I got you. We can walk down the streets of Chicago, start naked in a parade in front of little children, jiggle our genitals in front of little children today and call it pride because we have no shame whatsoever. And we're not a bunch of hypocrites, they'll say. Okay, I guess you got that going for you. But following, see, the, the lusts are just there. They're, they're just magnified. Truth is, all those people in the 50s who did that were sinners, and so are the ones today. We should deny this as Christians. We should fight against this. We should, first of all, start in our own 
place in our own heart and clean up our own room and our own heart about these things. And then live soberly, he says. Oh my goodness. That's another word you can't say in modern society, soberly. Every other street corner has a marijuana store on it. Much less all the, all the alcohol and all the other drugs and the people lining up at the doctor's office to get every kind of narcotic they can get their hands on. Now, there's obviously a pl- place for painkillers. Trust me, I-, I need some. Obviously. The New Testament says so. There's a place for medicine and, and, and painkillers. But we live in a country, in a society, that is just f- thinks that intoxication is the way to go. All, who was it the other day? Um, Aaron Rodgers. You know, sorry, sorry, Steve. I got to talk about Aaron. Well, he's not a Packer anymore, so you probably hate him now. He's a Jet. It's easy to hate the New York Jets, people that play for them. So that's, but anyway, being a Dolphins fan, he comes out and said, I think we should legalize hallucinogenic drugs. We should have, oh, okay. So we can increase the amount of psychosis, amount of people living on the streets in garbage cans and tents because their their brains are fried. Did you know that at minimum 25% of the the schizophrenia and mental illness among young people is caused by, brace yourself, marijuana, cannabis use. But it's a harmless little weed. It's it's a sanctuary. We got the one up on US one. The sanctuary. We've got True Leave. We've got all these uh, one leaf. You know all these religious buildings, sanctuaries from what? Okay. Once again, pain relief is necessary, but living a life. That we're not in our right minds all the time is not what the Bible says we should be doing. We should be, we should be with clarity of mind and purpose, sober as much, and sober, soberness as more than just not being intoxicated. It's living according to God's will. We should be thinking clearly. This is what the grace of God teaches me. Some people teach that the way you get, the way you get to God is to be high. That's why, you know, one of the, the first time I ever heard of Port St. Lucie, I was living in Broward County. This was 45 years ago, maybe more. First, the first time I ever heard of Port St. Lucie was in reference to what, do you think? Now, you gotta remember this was 50, 45 years ago. It was about psychedelic mushrooms. There was an article in the Sun Sentinel. Everybody was leaving Broward County on weekends, come up here to Port St. Lucie because there was nobody here. It was a vacant area and those mushrooms are growing everywhere and they people are coming from Broward, Miami to get all the psychedelic mushrooms. What a glorious city we live in. And now they're coming back, of course, because people are now cultivating the psychedelic mushrooms because people have always wanted to be intoxicated. If you're going to be a Christian, you need to put away intoxicants. You can use your own moral judgment about the extent of that. The Christian life is one of sobriety, of clear thinking. And you can't love God by getting high on a, going on a trip. That's how pagan cultures believe that that's how you get to God. The hippie movement in the 60s, one of the main components of that was the, was Timothy, Timothy Leary and the psychedelic movement was about getting to God through Jim, Jim Morrison. People go, they had to lock this man's grave down because all these old hippies like me were going there and worshiping Jim Morrison. The doors, you know, they were worshiping his grave. Jim Morrison spent most, died a young death, at a young age, I should say, 
lived most of his adult life completely intoxicated. And his song that everybody loves him for, not you, you, you just think of, of, uh, come on, baby, light my fire. But the one that, the one that the people who really follow him like is break on through to the other side. Cause he was using his psychedelic and trip, his trips and psychedelic drugs to break on through to the spiritual side to find God. But they ended up helping him meet God in a different way than he expected. Unfortunately. But this was, this is old. This is old stuff. Cause there's always been this movement to, to reach God through the use of, through not being sober. The God of the Bible, you encounter him with sobriety and clearness of thought. So learn that. And I got too involved in that and then live righteously. That means according to a state. The word righteous means the word justified. The word righteous is the same word. It means justified to a mark, brought to a line. When you justify something, you mark everything by a line. You bring everything in accordance with a line. I know this is antithetical to our culture, but that's what righteousness means. It means bringing your life and thoughts into, into a captivity to Jesus Christ and live righteously. Whether you want to or not, whether it's your first desire, whether it warms your heart to do it, you do it because it's what's right to do. And then live godly. That means that in that manner of living, that's the opposite of ungodliness. It means that God is the Lord of your life and you will do your best through reading of his scripture and through prayer and meditation, bring your life and thought in accordance with his will. Now, this is what grace teaches us. Kind of a different view of grace, isn't it? Because we think of it as a spongy, soft, emotional thing. And there's emotion in here. But this grace of God is teaching us something very straight and, and, and plain about how we ought to live. And it implies something else about grace. I know our time is gone, but um, there's this article I, I read by a fellow named Brandon Cox. I don't know him. He's an evangelical, apparently a pretty prominent evangelical preacher. He is associated with... Saddleback Church out in California at one time. Um, Rick Warren's church used to be out there. And so basically that we, we just don't know how to even receive this unlimited grace of God because it seems so easy to be be forgiven instantly of every, even the most heinous of sins, heinous of sins by a holy and righteous God because we place faith in his son. Now he's implying, and then he goes on to say, here, we, we receive this grace by, by placing our faith in his son. Then he goes on to say, reason, it's article titled, Three Reasons Why You Don't Get This Grace Thing. Sound like kind of smart like title I would do if I could, if I did that kind of thing. Three reasons why you don't get this grace thing. Well, one of them is, we're conditioned by conditional love. Man's love is conditional. God's love is unconditionally applies. Of course, he's confusing grace and love, isn't he? Is God's love unconditional? Well, he loves us because we're humans and he made us. But he doesn't, that doesn't mean he's going to save us because he loves us. He's made that very clear. And it doesn't mean that grace is unconditional. I thought you just got finished saying, Mr. Cox. That we have to receive God's, we have to, we have to believe in God's Son. Is believing in God's Son a conditional thing or is it unconditional? See, this is, the, the, the way we redefine words is just incredible to me. 
We're implying that God's love is unconditional. And with the same breath, we tell us, tell them you have to believe to receive it. Belief is obviously a condition to receiving God's grace. He says so here, but he's implying that only you terrible people would say it place a condition upon God's grace. God loves us and offers us conditional grace. The truth is God does love man and he offers you through Jesus Christ grace conditioned upon your obedience. Okay. And that's the part, since we don't like the conditions, we want to begin to call it unconditional. Does God hate sin? Yes. Does he require repentance? Yes. Why? How do we get unconditional receiving God's grace unconditionally when he says in the very same article we receive it through repentance? God requires repentance. And there's just more of this here. I, I don't want to bore you with it, but um, it, it's astounding. When you read things like this, please read not only carefully, but re- read with the scriptures in mind. I can offer you grace, God's grace, not my grace, God's grace this morning, and we're going to do that as we close, because it's the only way you can be saved. You can't be saved because you're a good person, you say. You can't be saved because you follow the uh, North American Indians, uh, you know, smoking a peyote to get to God. You can't be saved that way. You can only be saved through Jesus Christ. There's where the salvation, that's what, that's the grace that's appeared. Now the question then becomes, if you really want to be saved, what should be the next question out of your mouth? I know this from the Bible. The next question is, how can I be saved? What must I do? How can I be saved? If you really want to be saved. Now then, that implies that there are some conditions. There are some things that must be accomplished by you. Not just by God, but by you. That's why he says here in Ephesians, this verse you know, we're going to close with this. For by grace you have been saved through faith. He doesn't say in this context, for by grace have you been saved. That's how it's often quoted. We have people walk around, preachers walk around saying you're saved by grace only. Doesn't say that here. Does not say we're saved by grace only. We've been saved by grace through faith. Grace is God's part that you can't do. Faith is your part that you have to exercise. And that not of yourselves is the gift of God. Now they say, well, that means God gives you the faith. So God then gives some people faith, doesn't give other people faith, and yet he says it's for all men and wants all men to be saved. It's nonsense. You are led by to have faith in God by what you can see and what you can understand on your own. And so we haven't got time to go into all that this morning. But in understanding these things, then, I want to encourage you, if I can make the point, and I probably didn't make it in the sermon, I want to encourage you to understand and think that if you want to be saved, you have to come to understand what God wants you to do, what's expected of you, and ask the question, what must I do to be saved? That's a bigger answer. It requires faith on your part. How do you get faith? Oh, faith is a gift from God. Yes, but he says clearly that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Faith does come from God. It comes from God through His Word. Faith does come through the Holy Spirit. It comes because the Holy Spirit has revealed the Word of God. So yes, I believe we get faith through the Holy Spirit. I believe we get faith from God. Well, we get it through His Word. And that's why He says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God, Romans 10, 17. And then you have to believe what you hear so that you want to do something about it. Belief always leads to action. 
You need to repent of your sins to turn away. Even this man admits that repentance is necessary. Turning away. You cannot be living a godly life when grace teaches you to live a godly life. Excuse me. You can't be living an ungodly life when he says that grace will teach you to live a godly life. So you got to make a change there. That change is your idea of repenting. And then he says, repent to be baptized for the remission of your sins in Acts 2.38. So now you're buried with Christ as an act of faith a demonstration of the faith that you have. As a replication of Christ's death and resurrection, you're buried and raised up again. That's how you begin this journey. And then from then on, you begin to deny ungodliness and worldliness. If you become a Christian today here, and you can become one in just a moment by being baptized in this baptistry based on your belief and confession in Christ, what's going to be expected of you, not from me, but by God, is for you to turn your life around and live a godly life one of sobriety and one of denying the things of this world. That's what's going to be required of you. That's what God's grace instructs you. So, you ready to do that? It's a big thing, but you can do it. We're going to help you. You come to the front in just a moment as we as we sing this song as a means to encourage you to that. So, if we can help you today, you come right down here. Let's stand and sing.